Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Pat Michaels. I run the Center for the Study of Science here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I am a scientist by training, atmospheric scientist. And uh, we maintain abiding interests in all of the scientific fields that impinge upon the regulatory structure. Uh, that, of course, would include uh, the uh, regulation related to uh, our energy supply. Uh, there's a picture on this screen that is such a Cato picture. It's a picture of an outcropping of shale-bearing, uh, sh oil-bearing shale in Kentucky, or no, in, in Pennsylvania. And I'm going to yell a little bit here. Uh, <clears throat> imagine that this thing dove underground to about 8,000 feet. And we discovered that this stuff is everywhere. And you can get oil out of it. This is the whole notion of the, the remarkable creativity uh, of the human brain when dealing with scarcity and dealing with things that people need. Who would have thought 15 years ago that it was everywhere? Well, Ned will be talking about that and the remarkable things that have happened. So our speaker today is Ned Mamula. Oh, oh, I have to tell you, there's this thing called, I, I think it's called a tweeter or something like that. And this is something called a number sign tag. Uh, if you're going to express your thoughts in 144 characters or less, I think you need to go to tweeter and this number sign tag. Or else, if you want to be limited to the attention span of 144 characters or less, simply get old. So <clears throat> Ned Mamula is here. Uh, he came to our attention uh, a couple of months ago when uh, we started getting emails that he was very interested in what was coming out of the Center for the Study of Science, which struck me as something odd. And, uh, and we started talking, and I realized, wow, this is the kind of guy whose input we really want. He's a petroleum geologist, PhD in petroleum geology. Uh, he went, uh, he got his bachelor's at Slippery Rock. Uh, what do you expect? He's a geologist. And for what it's worth, in case you don't know, Pennsylvania is one of the epicenters of high-end geological research and training. It goes back to the coal industry, uh, which was nascent in the 19th century and essentially grew the economy of Pennsylvania. Got his master's from Penn State. That's as good as hard rock geology gets, and his PhD from Texas A&M University. And uh, after that, because Ned is one of these people that we like at the Center for the Study of Science, meaning people who recognize that what they do should interface with the public policy world. Uh, he also has a master's in international public policy from SICE, Johns Hopkins SICE, which is also about as good as it gets. Uh, he uh, worked for the U.S. Geological Survey uh, and uh, for the Minerals Management Minerals, Man Minerals Management Service. That's a part of the Department of Commerce, right? Interior. Yeah, Interior. I'm sorry, part of the Department of Interior. Was a DOE fellow. Uh, worked in the energy industry. Oh my God! Yeah, this guy actually worked for a living, and he's giving a seminar at Cato. Can you believe that? Uh, <clears throat> and he worked for Frontera and Anadarko. Anadarko is one of the pioneers of the energy renaissance in the world. So he has a lot of good experience. And then he went to work for a group of folks out in Langley uh, for a while uh, as an energy analyst. And so maybe he knows something that we don't know. Having said that, uh, I want to introduce Ned uh, and give him the podium here. We're going to try and wrap this in 40 minutes. We have lunch afterwards uh, at Cato. Cato is one of the few places in Washington where there is such a thing as a free lunch. So, Ned, it's all yours. All right, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you one and all for coming, each and every one of you. I really appreciate it, and I understand, and I realize I'm the only thing between you and that lunch, so <laughs> indulge me, and we're going to have fun and get through this. Uh, and, uh, Pat, I thank you for your kindness and your staff. I really, really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. My first time at Cato, and I'm just thrilled to be here. Now, 
let me remind you of something, and that is the simple fact that Cato <clears throat> is no stranger to energy, oil, and gas topics. Not at all. Uh, Pat, last year, late, you moderated a Capitol Hill briefing entitled The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and that was presented by Alex Epstein, and that was uh, in November. There were a couple of other energy uh, uh, talks and forums here in January, I think one in February, and then uh, Dr. Michaels asked me to attend two weeks ago today a presentation up in the Hayek Auditorium entitled National Security Implications of New Oil and Gas Production Technologies, which I was only too happy to attend. That was given by Eugene Goltz. He is a professor of uh, policy at uh, uh, the Johnson School at University of Texas. An excellent presentation there. A week later, what happened? Cato presented a documentary by a Cato senior fellow by the name of Jonathan Norberg entitled Understanding the World's Energy Needs. And that was just, as I say, merely a week ago. And today, we're going to talk about threats to the U.S. energy renaissance. So we'll move away from this. And by the way, before I do, let's go back. I know Pat loved this so. If you are at all out on a hike, if you're out somewhere, if you buy a U.S. Geological Survey map and you're out looking, or better yet, if you travel these magnificent interstate highways of ours, you could conceivably pull off safely far enough and see these surface exposures, these rock outcrops all up and down 81, 64, you name it. And uh, this one happens to be up in Pennsylvania. And uh, a lot of them are magnificent, many of them uncovered by construction to make the, 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 as the highways go through. Now today, what I plan to do is uh, I'm going to uh, go more technical on you than the previous Cato presentations. And uh, I'm going to take you behind the curtain and show you a little bit more about the oil and gas geology, the petroleum geology. And uh, we're going to talk about that up front. I need to set that up so that you understand what it is that's being threatened. And I'm going to talk about the policy implications of energy renaissance later. So we'll have the what and the why. And then we'll finish up with some Q&A, during which time I'll be happy to go over anything you will like, covering geology, geophysics, energy, energy policy, leasing, exploration, or production. So we'll save that for the end. Okay. So that's kind of the the way, uh, the map of where I want to be today. I took time and thought about my cover slide carefully, and I wanted to show you this silkscreen image, and I'm going to bring it to life for you now. If you are not familiar with the oil industry, you don't know about this. If you are, it's, this is old news, but this is called the Lucas Gusher. And in January 1901, the pressure from the oil below this structure blew part of the derrick off and blew six tons of piping sky high. And this gushed forth 150 feet for nine days, spewing 100,000 barrels a day. Today, this would be considered an environmental disaster. Then, 114 years ago, this event changed history. And I'll give you a real quick uh, insight on this. This was the first time we had a gusher like this. Also the first time a known structure was drilled. There was actually a dome there, very subtle, that was drilled. But the driller wasn't having luck, and he ran out of money. So he approached two Pittsburghers, and they gave him $100,000. And they got it from a little-known bank at the time, Mellon Bank. Once this gusher came in and it changed the history of the world, those men came to Beaumont, Texas, and they looked around. One looked out to sea and said, boy, we're going to have a company here. Let's see, what should we call it? There, there's a, oh, oh, that's the Gulf. Oh, OK, I know. Let's call it Gulf Oil. And that's where Gulf Oil was birthed, as well as Chevron and several other companies, and where Mellon Bank burnished its credentials and the rest is history. So this was the birth of the modern petroleum industry, 
prior to that in my home state of Pennsylvania, Drake's Well, which was more or less a seep. This was a full-throated explosion due to geodynamic pressure under the ground of oil. And I wanted to show this to you and explain it to you that we're only 114 years in and it changed world history and I want to sort of build on that today. Now, let's, let's talk about the key questions I'd like to identify and, and, and then we'll move on from there. First of all, it's important that we understand we're in a current energy renaissance and that that renaissance is somehow bracketed in time. We need to understand when it started or is it over? Are we in it? What's going on? What caused this so-called renaissance? Why now? Why is it still going on or is it? Is there an end game? If things are good now, is it going to be over? Are things going to be over and we're going to go back to those gas lines of the 70s? Is that, is that possible? And if we're in a true renaissance and we're really rolling with this, what would be, say, a threat that would loom over this kind of, a pro this kind of progress? And these are things that we need to ask, and, uh, and, and that's what we're going to go into today. Finally, I want to know and I want to tell you what I think the key to expanding that we already have could be. And I think it's so simple it might surprise you, and I'll save that to the last. Without a doubt, the technology that we're in today is rooted in, uh, the Renaissance is rooted in technology and innovation. You know, it's interesting. There's been so many unbelievable technological advances in the field of oil, petroleum, geology. But as I showed you at Spindletop, they're spread out over 114 years. If they were all crammed together, it would probably look like the Apollo program, you know? but they're spread out and you don't hear about them in mass. You hear about them when they happen. Here is what really is fueling us now. We have U.S. oil and gas production showing from the last 30 years, call it the mid-80s, where things are actually taking off, and in the case of natural gas, just going vertical. Now, even though it's a renaissance for oil as well, and you see that the prices of the, the production is going down since 85 and then goes back up sharply in 2008, you might say, well, why is that? Actually, prices cratered then. People were laid off. Uh, discoveries are still being made, but production itself sort of went down. And during that time, production of natural gas went up. So it's just sort of a give and a take that you see in that industry. There is a phase one to this energy renaissance and to this uh, technological uh, marvel in the past 30 years. And the technologies that made the most difference, I venture to say you've probably heard of them. If not, I'll explain them. One of them is directional drilling, the ability to take a drill bit from here and drill over there. Simple, but technologically advanced. Secondly, I think many of you may have heard of 3D seismic surveying, where we can take slices through the Earth in two dimensions. Now we can look three dimensions. And actually, uh, Pat, in some of these energy labs in Houston, you, you're in a room like this surrounded with animation. You're in four dimensions. It's, it's just stunning. Something I'm really involved with, or was, satellite image analysis really just tore the top, literally, off the country where industry scientists could look at imagery from satellite over big regions and make incredibly good decisions on where to run those seismic surveys, saving a lot of time, a lot of money. It was beautiful. Horizontal drilling. If you've seen the commercials from API on TV recently, horizontal drilling is a household word. And usually, right in bed with that is the idea of hydraulic fracturing. And we're going to get into that today, sometimes just known as fracking. These are the technologies that sent the energy renaissance uh, into uh, exponential overdrive. Now, let's look at each one of them a little bit just to give you a background. Directional drilling is an advantage because you can minimize your footprint, makes environmentalists happy. And you can drill one or more wells from the same pad 
moving on in different directions, different depths, what have you. Just a phenomenal way to control. Actually, now, certain companies are laying down track, putting drill rigs on wheels, and moving them like this. Rather than packing up and moving, they're just sliding them down. Drill here, pick up, slide down. Incredible, incredible savings and cost savings, time savings, really, really, really uh, true innovation. And a lot of these are simple concepts. When it comes to the shale that we saw in the, on the first slide, it's full of oil. You want to get that. That thickness of that rock layer is called your pay zone. You want to drill not intersecting the pay zone like in the old days, you want to be parallel and within that pay zone because if you are, you've got the maximum contact with it. And that's where the production really kicks into high gear. Now, when that pay zone or, red, or the red, what's what we call the reservoir, that's where the oil is held in the rock. You have the source rock, then it migrates to the reservoir. When the reservoir is fractured, as the shale in the first slide I showed you, you have a chance to drill in a certain way at a high angle or parallel to those fractures. And the reason that's an advantage is because you, you can, you, you're going to have more surface area of oil accumulation moving toward the wellbore. In other words, if I show you this reservoir and take you back to that first slide, this outcrop shows you, as Pat indicated, when you dive now, you're at six, 7,000 feet. I know from an exploration well, I know where the fractures are. I know their density. I know their direction or orientation. And I know that if I drill at maximum angle to advantage to them, and then I introduce, say, for example, fracking, I, I cause those fractures to swell up due to pressurization in the well, I can count on more oil migrating toward the well bore. In this case, the Marcella Shale, almost a household word. It covers most of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio. The other one was the Utica, covers West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Huge, huge areas, huge areas. And so we're now in this energy renaissance where we're taking advantage of them. It, 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 there's so much there, we, we haven't even scratched the surface. But the combination of directional drilling, horizontal drilling, hydrofracking, and shales where we know the density, fracture orientation is paying off big. And I'll show you what, how this works. The fracking, whether through a, a horizontal well or a vertical well, you introduce a, a liquid and you pressurize it, and it ruptures those, those are, uh, the areas that are already fractured. Then you introduce silica sand, and it's known as a propant, propant. It literally props open the cracks, the fractures. Then you withdraw the fluid, and the cracks stay propped open, kind of like a doorstop. Fluid comes back up, stored for the next use. Sand is down the hole, opening the fractures, and then the production begins at some point. Because of those simple things I've shown you, the directional drilling, horizontal drilling, fracking, propping, we now have, since 2008, an explosion of shale production in this country. These are known as formation names. Uh, don't worry about those too much, although Utica, Marcellus, Eagle Ford are sort of household names. They're the states in which they occupy massive areas. There is the production in billions of barrels, I'm sorry, billions of cubic feet per day. And since 08 till now, the production has exploded. It's 10 times. And there's no end in sight. Here you can see the contribution of every one of these. And notice, even the so-called famous Bakken shale that everybody hears about in North Dakota, it's really uh, relatively small compared to Marcellus and some of the others. Okay? That triangle of production fits right there. Here's the year 2008. Here's that triangle. 
kaboom. And now we have all of this production. And of course, this is gas. The, the little triangle is gas. You can add into that oil. Let me come over here. Here's the oil part of it since 08. And then here's the gas since 08. So imagine these two superposed on each other. And that gives you an idea of the magnitude of what's happening. Now, energy R&D has all of a sudden become very respectable. People are interested. Various corporations are looking at it that aren't usually players in the oil and gas business. Lo and behold, General Electric. They have a $200 million energy research and development center going up in Oklahoma City that's going to be ready next year. They're focused on uh, uh, mid and late stage, what we call downstream uh, geology, oil and gas development. And they're going to be looking at things such as production systems, uh, well construction systems, including the, the, the sets of track that you move these things back and forth. GE builds valves that are very important in the, in the oil field. Energy systems this is sort of a catch-all. Water systems and carbon dioxide systems, which are used to flood oil toward a central well bore. And uh, unbelievable companies that you wouldn't normally associate with energy or in energy are getting involved. Now, as if that weren't enough, we have what's going on, uh, what I refer to as a phase two of the current energy renaissance. And the reason I separated out from phase one, I showed you phase one, showed you what's driving, it, and I showed you results. In phase two, I'm going to get a little technical on you, but bear with me. We have upstream technology at work now. Part of it's in exploration. Part of it's in what we call downhole. And what downhole means what it says, downhole. For the exploration part of it, I, 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 class, I put these in a category here. Analyzing big data for these unconventional oil and gas. That means crunching massive amounts of numbers with algorithms. That belongs into phase two. Aquatic drones that go off on seas and oceans that actually collect seismic data without cables. I, you know, that's futuristic stuff. Wireless seismic, onshore and offshore, don't need cables anymore. Up, down, boom, data's there, start processing. Downhole, nanotechnology gives us drilling muds of a certain uh, feel, and, and, and certain lubricants that are needed. And it also tells us how to design most efficient drill bits that can be designed. Very exciting stuff. No wonder other companies are getting involved because there's just a, a tsunami of need for technology. Monitoring fractures downhole is extremely important. And I'm glad, Pat, you insisted on uh, starting out with that fracture shale slide. Now you understand how fractures are really important. The Reveal 360 is just a trade name for downhole imaging. That's a trick in itself because the, the well bore is full of mud. How are you going to see anything? Seismic while drilling is actually a term, technical term. It's called SWD. And when you do seismic with drilling, I'll show this to you in a minute, you're able to actually see ahead of the drill bit. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. You know what you're going to encounter before you encounter it. Back to the future. Geosteering while horizontal drilling. And that is a phenomenal thing. I'll show that to you. That ties back with the horizontal drilling and the hydrofracking that I showed you a minute ago. It's taken it to another dimension. Deep data and real-time wireless brings back, just, just inundates us with data and with computer power the way it is. We can take advantage of almost all of it. And then finally, something that's coming, we don't know when, but the idea of drilling with a laser is just, just people are salivating. But people are too busy with the other to worry about it. But it's, it's coming, and there's research dollars behind it. Let's take a look at a few of these things. And I, just real simple so you get a visual image. The wireless idea, now think about it. You're on a, on a platform out in the ocean, out on the outer continental shelf. You want to be able to connect the pipe from the, from the drill floor to the riser on the seabed down pole like that. 
and you want to have every bit of data piped back to your researchers on board that you can get a handle on, and the best way to do it is with wireless technology. Everybody knows what wireless is. I'm just showing you how it's being applied. GPS, everybody knows what that is. And that brings us to the question, how in the world can you pull all the drill string out of the, out of the hole and expect to put it back in there without super precise GPS location, dropping that string down there with a new drill bit into the riser and down to where it needs to be. Just, just breathtaking. The seismic well drilling that I mentioned to you looks like this. It's not the greatest slide, but imagine. I have energy from a source pulsating down I'm getting return waves from deeper than my drill bit. This is cut off, forgive me, but I can see below the level of this bit. So I'm sitting up in a shack on, the, on board the rig or the drill ship. I know it's coming. And that is so exciting. I mean, it's so exciting. You, you can prepare for that, uh, prepare for what's coming. Geosteerable, Th this has got to be one of my favorites. You're steering a drill bit with specialized tools down hole. Here's your tricone bit. This is your steering unit. It consists of motors, okay, and electronics. It's going to move that bit with the joysticks up top. Behind it, these things, when I say tools, I don't mean a set of, of channel locks or a screwdriver. I'm talking about four and five million dollar, 50 foot long tubes packed full of electronics and sensors that are looking at resistivity, temperature, pressure, uh, organic content, you name it. And all of that is sensed, boom, wireless up to, the, uh, up to the people on the rig. And as a matter of fact, here's a close-up. Here's a steerable unit and the tools. How, how big is that? How... Uh, well, it depends on the well bore, 8-inch uh, bore, 10-inch bore, 12-inch bore. You know, they make them special. These are made by what we call the service companies, the Halliburtons, and those kinds of companies that you've all heard of. But as I showed you now, GE is getting in and other companies. So very interesting how that is diversified. Okay, here's something that I thought was worth it. Uh, this is probably the most uh, uh, geeky slide, but bear with me. If I take a horizontal well and I'm geosteering it up top, I can essentially, and it used to be a big deal, if I could get a lateral well for maybe 15, 20, 25, 30 feet, I'd say, hey, great, I will frack that and start producing. No. This is 1,000 feet. It, you're able, based on other responses coming back from the tools that I just showed you, you're able to drive this thing, stay within your lanes in the productive horizon for 10,000 between five and 10,000 feet laterally. It's unheard of, like even three years ago, but now they're doing it. That's why the numbers are going asthmatopic on, on the production. This is just a resistivity, you know. How, how does this, these rock units resist certain electrical stimuli? And based on the fingerprint of this, I can stay within that. If this thing started to go, I know I'm out of that formation. I got to get back into it. Uh, wireless, I already mentioned, but here onshore, I can drop these out of a helicopter, drop them out of a truck. I don't have to carry cable across desert, and I don't have to lay it out for my seismic survey, and I don't have to retrieve it. All I have to do is retrieve these, and there's probably times where they don't even bother with these things. Okay, as if all that weren't enough, let's look at computer power and what it's done, what it's doing. We have now combining, I remember I showed you phase one, I showed you phase two. What if I tell you, hey, let's put them together and synergize and see if there's a synergy. You know there is. And here's what's happening due to that synergy when we combine all that computational power with software packages that are specifically written for the geoscientists. Now, there's a trend industry-wide, doesn't matter what company you're with, you can buy that software, and that trend is universal where you're increasing your number of successful wells. Very few dry holes drilled anymore. It's just not heard of. 
discoveries are really more predictable. In other words, even when I was in school not that long ago, it was sort of artsy and science, you know, this whole idea of where to drill. There was a rom romanticism, blah, 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 you know, like the spindle top. Today, that's gone. It's really science. The art is gone. We know exactly where we are in three and four dimensions. That time means geologic time, okay? Not this time, geologic time. I'm, I'm in this place on Earth, and where I am here at the drill bit is 150 million years old Jurassic rock. I know where I am. And the average success hits today are stunning. There's 60 and 70%. And this is a function of where you are in the world, undeveloped areas, unexplored areas, probably a little less. Explored areas a little more. But here's, here's something that really makes this exciting. Only 50 years ago, this number was 5 to 10%. 50 years, we've gone from 5 to 10 to 60 to 70. Okay, here are some of the milestones achieved since uh, because of all these things. Okay, crude oil production is now back to where it was at its historic high, and 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 uh, following that, we're having uh, uh, such a massive amount of production. Imports are starting to not be needed; they're falling off. And we now outproduce not only Russia but the Saudis. We're number one now, and this has only happened in a few years ago, the past few years. Who would have thought this? I need to go back now to my go-to slide that you've seen four or five times to tell you, to show you that, look, the all-time high of nine and a half million barrels a day was reached 45 years ago. Here's where we, we spent the last 40 years. Guess what, folks? We're back to where we were, and there's no end in sight. Same for gas. Gas never really, gas just blew past where it was now, and it's on an upward trajectory as well. So I keep showing the slide to, 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 for you to understand that this triangle here, whether it's a steep slope or a little less steep, but these triangles are the energy renaissance I'm talking about. And since we're pr uh, producing so much, Imports are falling, and we've passed these guys by, and looks like it's clear sailing pretty much going forward. Oh, there's going to be bumps and hiccups, but I'm just giving you general broad brush today. There's other milestones that I want to, I broke out separately. Here they are. Economies being, and I'm not an economy guy or a policy guy, but let's look at these nonetheless, and you can, we can talk about them after. Production is shaping the economy. Low gas prices are boosting uh, those related industries. Now, I'm not sure about this, Pat. We talked about this this morning. I think gas has overtaken coal as the chief power producer. But if I'm wrong, uh, forgive me. Uh, if, Close. If it hasn't overtaken it, it's getting there, OK? So, so, so bear with me on that. I, I apologize. It's close. But there's a shift away from coal. For sure. And it's making environmentalists happy. We're, we're dropping the CO2 emissions uh, below uh, 2005 levels through 2040. So in other words, th 25 years from now, the, the levels of CO2 emission will be less than, uh, than, than in 05. There's also an efficiency improvement in, in residential and transportation uses. And then finally, everybody enjoys the lower prices. I mean, let's face it. Now you see prices going up at the pump, then they'll go down, then they'll go up. But that idea where it fell down to where we can enjoy uh, is certainly something that everybody looks forward to. Okay. What I painted for you, a rosy, maybe a little too rosy, but I've painted a, 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 a good news picture. But in every life, some rain must fall. So the question is, what could threaten this explosion in oil and gas, this so-called energy renaissance? What, what could possibly threaten that? You know, if you're the oil companies, if you're involved in energy, you're the roadrunner. Who would that wily e. coyote be? Let's take a look at that. 
Here are what I think are the threats. And again, we'll turn this open to you at the end, and you, everybody can chime in. I think the whole idea, forgive me, of a carbon tax or this cap and trade, trying to reach in to, to a, a beautiful industry and grab something related to carbon and tax that, I, I'm just I'm not comfortable that it's, that, that, it's, that it's well enough thought out. Second, I know for a fact that there is literally, well, not literally, but figuratively a blizzard of regulations coming down the pipe for this year and next year, and I'll show those to you in just a minute. But these are cause for concern, uh, as is the other. Okay, even more documented and more well understood are the restrictions that are now on top of federal lands leasing, whether you're onshore or offshore. There's no dispute, and I'm, I'm gonna show you the numbers here in a minute. Access to federal lands is shrinking this explosion I've shown you uh, here, I'll, I'll show you in a minute where, what lands it's coming from. You'll be surprised. Finally, this is, this is my bandwagon here. I don't think there's proper stewardship on these federal lands, and I don't care who knows it. I just don't see the stewardship necessary to husband our resources to our maximum advantage. I'm sorry. I don't see it. If I'm wrong, I want to know about it. As of now, it isn't there. That carbon tax has an issue to it where these people are working, they're being taxed. These people are consuming, they're being hit. And all of the people in between, and there's assumptions here I'm not totally comfortable with. I'm not sure people are going to modify their habits. Oh, yeah, sure, we drove less when the gas was more. And there was some, some behavioral modification, but I, I'm not sure how you quantify this. And when you talk about cleaner technologies, if we're going to, from coal to natural gas, that's, that's, that's cleaner than, than it was. How clean is clean? And of course, innovation and efficiency, you know, that's a big assumption. How much innovation and who's doing it and who's paying for it. So, so that's just a sort of a an idea that, that, that there's a lot more swirling around than you, might, than you might have thought about. Now, back to the regulations that I was so confident that I was going to show you. <laughs> I didn't even bother retyping this for a, to, I don't like word sli wordy slides, sorry. But I did this on purpose. I just grabbed it and slapped it in here to show you how absolutely onerous this, this could be in the next year or two. And to wit, we've got a couple of, we have hydraulic fracturing at the top. We also have it down here, reconsidering of fracking. We have methane here, methane there. Worldly rates increasing here, transportation, renewable standards. Ugh. Look over in the right, the proposed dates and the final dates. Some of these have slipped, but just the idea that they're in the queue is sort of, you know, it's not... It doesn't bring warm and fuzzy feelings, especially for, you know, for folks in this industry. I think some of this goes back to that idea of stewardship, and we'll talk about that. Now, let me take the hydrofracking or fracking issue, because I know a little bit about that, and let's, let's explode that and take a look at it. To try to make a blanket regulation from coast to coast, border to border for fracking is not a good idea. Hydrofracking comes in a lot of different varieties. You don't want one regulation on fracking. You want to have it remaining at the state and local level where they understand those geologic basins with the different rock types in them that are going to be fracked. Some require more pressure, some require less, some are drilled deeper, some less deep. But the, but the idea is that regulators at those local levels are probably the best qualified to make those decisions. You know, in fracking, like the rest of what I showed you, things are evolving so fast, they're actually evolving faster than the ability of the regulators to keep up. And now, you've heard about all these water wells being contaminated. I got news for you. There's not evidence of one water well contaminated by the fracking, not one. 
when you look at Ohio and Texas combined, you have 1.2 million wells, fracking wells drilled, not one. Now, you may hear of contamination. I'll give you a little backdoor, a uh, little uh, inside baseball. A lot of people's private water wells are drilled down to where production's good, right? A lot of them are they're shoehorned in. They're, they're, they're sort of backdoored in. They don't have a permit, whatever. They'll take them down. A lot of times, coal will act as a beautiful aquifer, water sitting on coal. They get on there, hey, I got 10 gallons a minute, good to go. Well, they pull that up out of there, it's got coal bed methane in it. Sure, it might light it on fire, but that has nothing to do with the fracking that's gone on thousands of feet below. So that, that whole idea of that gas land, that is just such a, such a, so, so intellectually dishonest. But the regulators, you know, look, there's now what's called waterless fracking. Let me explain. You're going to like this. It, it, how many of you heard of, have heard of what guar gum is? Does anybody know what guar gum? Guar gum is a substance that gives ice cream that chewy flavor in your, that chewy texture in your mouth. Waterless fracking, a lot of it, in, it involves big storage tanks of guar gum. They pump that down the hole, put the sand in, pull that out, and it sits there. Guar gum is like a, a blob; it doesn't do anything. It's it's you know it just sits there. It's it's innate. Or if water's used, they bring it back and store it for the next time. They don't re-inject it and waste it. So when you're in a drier uh, western state, you want to hang on to those water resources. They're important. Now, here's the third uh, a threat category. And I wanted to just show you, this has nothing necessarily uniquely to do with this administration. It's been going on for like 30 years. And this is important. People need to know. Your total number of leases has diminished from this to that, and the trend is continuing down. This is not wise, in my estimation. This goes to the idea of stewardship, and we're going to get to that in a minute. <clears throat> the percent change in the onshore oil and gas I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, and look at it. On federal lands, oil and gas dropped. Where's all that oil coming from in the shale I spent 15 minutes put, uh, building up for you? It's coming from state and private lands. That's where it's coming from. People are getting uh, uh, big paydays from oil companies for their land, some of them, some of them not. States are handling their own, and they're doing just fine, thank you. It's worse offshore, folks. There's about 87, almost 90% of our offshore federal minerals and, and mineral fuels and energy off limits. Okay, for those of you who are in the know, just last week, Interior, BOEM, formerly the Minerals Management, where I was employed now, referred to as BOEM, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, okay, put out the uh, Chukchi Sea approval for drilling, and environmentalists are, are, are running wild. They, they're very upset about it. Beaufort Sea was open, and of course the Gulf of Mexico is the, is the go-to area for the United States. Now, the offshore east coast, you see those horizontal lines there, it was approved for G&G, &G, geological and geophysical exploration of the outer continental shelf, uh, but uh, uh, not production, just exploration. And I want to finish here with the trends for leases on federal lands. New leases are down. Total leases are down. Leases in effect are down. And you always hear people say, oh, these companies, they hoard these leases. You know, look, you get a lease, you can't drill over every bit of it. You, there's only certain places. You get a lease, you do exploration. It takes years to figure out where you're going to spud or put your well in or do your mine. It's not an overnight thing. Finally, the total access is down. Okay, back to my pet peeve. This government is not as good of a steward of our wealth as it could be. We need better stewardship on federal lands. The feds own a third of this country. 
It's often their ownership is at odds with reasonable development. If I say, let me go out here and just, just explore, I, I, I promise, I'm not going to, I just want to see what's there. No. States are better stewards of the federal lands than the feds. That's, 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 that's not even arguable. Many governments are already down the road. They're adept at leasing. They're adept at royalty rental. They know what to do. They know how to collect data. They know how to manage. They have their geological surveys. Some of them are famous, Oklahoma, Texas, you name it. And if you don't think what I'm saying is ringing true to you, an exploration permit from BLM takes on average 305 days, seven days. You want that permit from the state of North Dakota? Come back next week. We'll have it ready for you. I think that sort of sums it up. Ohio, 14 days. Texas, 15, 20 days. Okay. In summary, the Renaissance has been going on 30 years. I tried to build that case for you. It's built on upstream. That's the exploration. And the downstream, that's the production technologies. Computers and software are propelling this thing like you wouldn't believe. Successful wells at an all-time high. The threats are here. Carbon, regs, restrictions. And that, again, I want you to leave here with the idea that stewardship is important. And we need to really focus on stewardship of that which we, the people, own. Now. I finish and I ask that question of that intellectual powerhouse, Wiley Coyote. I say, hey, Wiley, does government siding in on any energy sector ever, ever end well? And when he lights that fuse, I think the answer will be probably not. I'm Ned Mamula, and I think it was uh, uh, this uh, 40 minutes has just flown by. I'm so excited to be here, and thank you. Thank you very much. I hope. I've left you with some feeling about this industry. And if you'll indulge me for one minute, literally, I've got something to show you that I, I wanted to end with on a positive note and something that will interest you. And I want to, yeah, I want to click. And. Uh-huh. Okay. Flip the mouse. Oh. I think if you go in here. Oh, you don't have a you don't have a cursor. There, there, there. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry you, folks. Hang on. I think that'll do it. Oh, thanks, Ben. Enjoy this. <clears throat> One stop go home with me. It is the love of the earth and the uncovering of the wonders and unveiling of its secrets that attracts men and women to study the science of geology. It is the resources provided by the Earth that fulfills the needs of humankind. It is the energy that comes from the Earth that keeps us warm in the winter, cool in the summer, provides the means to a clean environment, and powers the engines of commerce that create a quality of life for humankind. It is the success of the petroleum geologist that has provided these means. That success takes a solid knowledge of the science with the ability to create in their mind the three dimensions of space, then add the element of time. They then communicate that vision and apply sound business practices to bring the idea to its fruition. It is the Okay, I think you get the idea. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. I think, Matt, uh, we're going to take Q&A, and I think you're perfectly fine of uh, choosing your own people to... Sure, sure, so Q&A. The, the guy up there on the right, our right, Q&A, had his hand uh, up. Who? Right there. Okay, go. On the right. No, oh, no. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'll come back to you. Yes, sir. I just wanted to reinforce what you were saying. The, um, uh, we bought our family farm in upstate New York in 1960. We wanted to have a drilled well. We went down 250 feet. We noticed that air came out when we turned on the faucet, and someone lit it with a, trying to put a match out. And my father lived into his 80s after drinking that water for 46 years. So I, um, 
I don't know how, I'd, I probably wouldn't be here. I told some of the Cato colleagues I'd endow a chair if Kuma would get off his ass and around fracking in New York. But uh, I just don't, how do you, you, how do you deal with people are, that are pure emotion? How do, I mean, they, they don't believe, listen to the facts. Okay, let me just offer you the, 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 the better educated folks are, and I don't think this was graduate level, some of it maybe, but the, the better educated, the, the better people are enabled to discuss the situation. You know, I find, I'm a simple guy, I like the diagrams more than the words. I like, you know, when a water well is here and my fracking well is here, that says a lot. How am I going to communicate between rocks from here to here? Is that reasonable? And that's really all you, you know, if it's a zealot, you're not, I'm sorry, I, there's no help or hope. But when you look at diagrams that are simple, you go on API website or some of the other websites, I mean, look around. You're going to see slanting this way, that way. But look at a good, solid diagram. Find out if it's scientifically reasonable and then stick with it. Yes, and I'll get, I'll get to you now. I'll give your name, please, if you can. Ciencia Press. Uh, various kinds of injection can cause earthquakes. Uh, do you think that we should have, uh, for every nuclear plant, a no injection zone around that plant? Okay. Let me just. Uh, put it to you this way. That might not be a bad idea. Then if we say no injections within X radius of this plant, probably reasonable. Look at that. But I want to hasten to point out, <clears throat> you have micro seismicity in earthquakes, and then you have settling in other, other, other earth movements. You know, we're getting these so-called earthquakes in areas there's no fault, geologic fault. How does that happen? So. Again, going back to this man's question, you know, the media gets out there and they get uh, they, they get into something where they're not qualified to talk. I mean, if I if I there's a lot of people that are posing as scientists. I mean, if I pose as a lawyer, I I, I would have I'd be they'd probably arrest me. But you cannot say there's an earthquake here if there's no fault necessarily. You have settlement, you have other things, you have pore pressure, so on and so forth. But what you said to me, I think, is reasonable. And I would look at that, not only power plants, but there's probably other facilities. If we inc increase the access, I don't need to be, nor do I want to be around a nuclear power plant. I want to drill over here where I'm not bothering them and vice versa. At the, at the same time, if I could offer a comment, yeah, most of the, uh, uh, the ground movements, which I think is a more accurate term, uh, that are associated with with uh, fracking are on the order of magnitude three. There's been one that was a five. Yeah. So if I, but you know, magnitude three isn't much different than a freight train going by yeah. a power plant. They're built for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Sir. Hi, Jesse Coleman with Greenpeace. Um, I have two yeah. questions. Yes, sir. Uh, the first question is: Do you see any? Uh, serious environmental impacts from shale drilling or fracking, and are you concerned about the impacts uh, from this new oil boom on uh, climate change? On climate change. Climate change. Okay, uh, good questions, and I want you to bear with me. I never said, nor should anybody believe, that there's never been a problem with fracking as far as an environmental issue in the past. We've had 30 years that I've shown you, and by the way, fracking has been going on since the 1950s, so. We've got 65, 70 years of fracking. It's only in the last 30 years where it's really been used to its maximum efficiency. And because it's been so harnessed and tamed, there is really not any negative environmental impact from that. And I explained to this other gentleman the, the, dif the difference between water well and fracking well and how the separation between of rock layers between them. So I don't see that. Now, to the global climate change issue, you could say, all right, increase oil and gas production, probably more methane now released. Does that cause, or is that a cause for concern in climate change? And the answer is, if you look at the amounts that we're looking at, 
over the vastness of our atmosphere, I don't think it, and I don't see it. And I would like to see any number somebody might have that says, okay, 100 fracking wells in western PA over the last 10 years, temperature's gone up, CO2's gone up, methane's gone up. Those numbers don't exist. Yes? Good afternoon. My name's Todd Wiggins. Thank you for the marketing presentation. It's very impressive. And at the same time, I wanted to ask you, who controls the technology with respect to this technique that you've, you've demonstrated? Who is basically the forefather of the way in which you go about doing this? And who, who would have the greatest interest in seeing this technology uh, developed throughout Northwest U.S., et cetera? Who would benefit most from it? Who would benefit most from having the technology I showed today? Everybody. Uh, who, who would benefit from this technology? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, Halliburton is a service company. Okay, you have Halliburton and you have a whole string of service companies that their function in life is to assist the major producers, out, you know, like ExxonMobil. They don't do a lot of this technology. They farm it out to service industries. Like any major industry has their associated industries. The beneficiaries of what I've shown today are basically people. People have been put to work. People are allowed to think and design, invent, create, work on jobs, produce the resources that otherwise sit there and generate more jobs, revenue, and in, and, and in the the thrust of the movie I showed you at the end, it really just lifts our level of life here. And what about other people in other parts of the world that are sitting on wealth of resources? Like I know firsthand in Afghanistan, probably the wealthiest country in the world vis-a-vis -vis resources, can't get to them. Is that fair? You. Hi, I'm Penny Starr with CNS News. Um, wouldn't you think that if developing domestic energy would, if you're concerned about the environment and you believe that it, there's some damage from um, developing it, though, wouldn't it be less environmental damage to develop our own than have to import things and bring things from other countries, and whether it's pipelines or planes or any, any other method? Great question. Look, let me, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to go in a, in a circuitous route. I wish, honestly, more than anything, that there was no Exxon Valdez. I really, really wish there wasn't, because it's so stuck in the minds of people. Prior to that, things were great. And, and going back to Santa Barbara Channel blowout in 1969, you had all that time in there of, of really admirable stewardship on the pr part of companies. You know, energy companies are the last people in the world that want a spill, that want a problem. They're, that's how they make their money, and they don't want any issues. This Macondo well in the Gulf, again, gosh, I wish I, wish I could take, it would, could be taken back. That was a human error. That, that, that was something that should have never, never happened. They pulled the drilling mud out of the hole, which was keeping the pressure in, and they flooded it with seawater to speed up the time that the drill, drill bit could be changed. Big mistake. They put seawater in, and it could, Oh, you know, it costs lives, and, and look what it's done to the, to, 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 the, to, to the PR. So does that answer your question? Look, yeah, d develop them here, use pipelines here. You don't have to transport them and risk an, a Valdez, or you don't have to get into, say, uh, if you'd open up more onshore, you, you less risk, ostensibly less risk offshore, and I hope that helps. Yes. for your presentation. I think what's missing in this picture, uh, in your presentation and, and uh, slide is uh, if you want to talk about renaissance, if you want to talk about technology, whether we, uh, or oil or, or gas or whatever, whether they are worthwhile to keep or not, is you have to think about the alternative. And what we are now is time change, alternative change, we are now looking for clean energies. We are now looking for our people's health. We want to reduce uh, health care costs. We want to say government has to do it right. We cannot yeah, allow the government subsidy, corporate welfare, at the taxpayers' uh, 
uh, burden. So I just think we have to change all this, analyze together. Yeah. And there's a BP spill, Exxon spill, they are very huge and they are fracturing problem. So we got to think all this together. We must reduce the taxpayers' burden. Okay, that's not a question. Can you ask it to the question? My question is, can you really bring all this issue together and present to the public in a fair fashion rather than bias toward this oil, petroleum industry? And that's okay. a corporation welfare I'd we like can to afford. I, that, that's fine. Okay. Thank you for your speech. Uh, let me just say that it is well known, Mark Mills at Manhattan Institute has done this work, it's impeccable work, that if you're interested in health and welfare, and you are, and so are all of us, that the energy use per capita within a society is directly related to health and welfare. So you need it. Now, if you would like to use sources such as solar energy and windmills, that's fine. But they have two problems. One, they aren't dense. They have more than two problems. They are not dense. They cannot supply enough energy for the way a society uses energy, a modern, advanced society. Yeah, you can put solar panels uh, in places in Africa that will give a, a, a modest amount of energy to people who are barely subsisting, but it's not going to work here. And, uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to be honest, we have to stop throwing everybody's money down rat holes that physics shows simply don't work. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, look, I understand. Let, let me just say, I, I'm not ignorant, okay, of this. I did my master's thesis in Iceland. Everything's powered by geothermal. It's phenomenal, okay? They still need oil for cars, which there aren't many, okay? So, okay. but what if I told you, and there, there is a nexus somewhere. We haven't reached it yet, but let me just offer this to you before we move on. If I drill a dry hole for oil and gas, I come up dry, I'm an oil company, and I say, I'm going over here. There may come a time, not in the not too distant future, where I can turn around and re-sublet uh, that lease to somebody who will be willing to inject that well with water and develop geothermal power right there. Because they already have the inf half the infrastructure in place. When you put water down several thousand feet, it heats up and you pump it out. So don't feel that energy is just oil and gas and everything else be damned. That's just not true. Time goes on, and it's going to be all of these different types of energy until someday we reach some kind of a nuclear uh, or, or a fuel cell technology where you know, we'll be uh, out here somewhere looking back and thanking uh, our creator that we were able to achieve those kinds of levels. Another question or two, and then yes, sir. Yeah, we're going to go four more minutes. Four minutes, sir. Yeah. Oh, well, here and then you. I hope that answered your Thank you for taking the time today. Um, I'm Connor, also work for Greenpeace. Um, you said thank the creator. I'm wondering if what you think about uh, Pope Francis's calling to address climate change and its impact on the world's poor. Mm -hmm. I told you several minutes ago that I really, really appreciate uh, scientists such as Dr. Michaels and myself who do not get involved in legal issues. And I also appreciate uh, uh, lawyers and politicians who would stay back uh, one step removed from science without plunging in there becoming an overnight expert. And by extension, I think everybody has a specialty and something to offer. And as one who has worked hard for the degrees that I have and really struggled and now try to share that, and I think Pat will go along with it, I, I, I don't like too much cross-pollination, but discussion is always good. But don't come to me and be an expert in a field that you're not. Yes. You had a question? Yes, sir. I hope that answers your question. Okay. Uh, Mike Kutzig, uh, formerly of the Department of Agriculture Economist. Just a couple of things. Would you explain, and I don't remember anymore, why the sudden decline in U.S. production, when you show that graph going down very sharply uh, from the United States, when demand was going up, was it in fact the fact that demand was going up so much that triggered the, the uh, increased production outside of all the technology. Yeah. Uh, number two, are other countries also doing these things? Are countries uh, that need oil and produce oil, are they also 
do, may, uh, using this technology? Yeah, there's two questions. First of all, that, that sharp drop you saw, even, even in the midst of the, the energy renaissance, yeah, the bottom fell out of the market. The prices, people forget, prices cratered in 1999 to $10 and less a barrel. So uh, people like me were let out of our jobs, re relieved of our jobs, and uh, turned out. I mean, and so even though it's in that renaissance window, the, the, uh, the prices were down. That takes production down, never mind what demand, you know. And demand went down, too. Recall, we just was a few years before that, we had the gas lines. People said, you know, enough of this. I'm getting a mini car. What do you call it? Yeah, but when people said, I'm not going to be sitting in a gas line with a, with a great big SUV, I'm going to do. So demand actually was reduced, production reduced, and the, the price per barrel went down, and then exploration was done away with. Your other question was, uh, 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 OK, and here's the answer to that. Our big powerhouse trading partners, especially Canada, you know, Canada is right on top of everything I've shown you, and so is Norway. A lot of these developments come from companies, uh, say, uh, Stat Oil, and they're heavily involved in this, and others. The Russians wish they could get more of this, and hey, we'll see how that all plays out. I'm not a policy guy, okay? But uh, your big oil producers, if they don't have it, they want it. People like Norwegians, Canadians, US, we have it. Brazil has a lot of oil and gas in play. And you know it's going to be some time before they understand it. And with that, I'm going to close, and I'm going to thank you for your kind attention. And uh, thank you.